Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, so this week on the show, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Claire Bernard Miller, the founder of Activate PT and Wellness, to learn why all runners should be spending a bit more time strengthening their feet and pelvic floors, which are two areas that, when strong, can go a long way in preventing some common overuse injuries. It's October now, the time of year when all of those hard summer miles might start to catch up with us. So I figured it'd be a perfect time to have Claire on to dispense some wisdom as we transition seasons. And as a physical therapist who treats some of ultra running's top athletes and an avid runner herself, Claire spends quite a bit of time staying up to date on the latest research around training, rehab, and various recovery protocols. So this episode is definitely worth bookmarking. But before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Also, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on this show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Claire. All right, Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on because we've had physical therapists and chiropractors on before uh, that have kind of like given our audience... Um, some primers on like how to stay healthy and stuff like that. Uh, And I kind of wanted to move into some, I guess, not alternative topics, but some areas of physical therapy that like are up and coming. And I know that you have been really fascinated by the connection between foot strength and staying healthy and the importance of pelvic floor strength as well. Um, So I'm wondering if we can kind of explore those topics today. Uh, But before we do, I want to get a little bit of background info on you. How did you get into sport and what was your journey like to becoming a physical therapist? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I grew up um, in elementary school playing soccer. And then um, when I went into like my school was middle school, high school, um, Walnut Hills, um, I missed the soccer tryouts because we were on vacation in the summer. And uh, so my friend invited me to join the, um, her to go to a cross country practice. Um, I had no idea, like, I don't know that, I had never really thought about joining the cross country team, but I showed up and we ran around a cemetery. And then the kicker was on Fridays, we would run to get ice cream. So I joined the cross country team <laughs> and, uh, And then I just loved it. And I loved um, the friends that I made on the team. Um, And so, yeah, I ran through high school. Um, I did some track as well. And then in college, I did um, the the club running team at Georgetown. Um, And that's kind of what got me into like, I guess, longer running. Um, I did a marathon in college and then I tore my hamstring right after that. I had no concept of like recovery, just thought like you just kept running. So yeah, I tore my hamstring. That was kind of my first encounter with with physical therapy. And um, at that time, 
what I remember from physical therapy is that they would do ultrasound on the hamstring and then maybe I did some clamshells um, and that was about it. Um, and then fast forward, I graduated from college and I kept running and I was doing yoga um, and I really hurt my SI joint to the point where I couldn't walk and I, I was working at a restaurant and I couldn't go to work because I couldn't stand for very long. And I was limping like really, really badly. And at that point, I didn't realize that you could go to a PT without insurance. And I had just gotten, I just finished with my um, like student health plan. So I didn't have health insurance at that time. So I thought I was just kind of like stuck and I didn't know if like I should go to the ER or whatever. And my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, connected me with the um, physical therapist at Georgetown. Um, he ran for Georgetown. And so he knew the physical therapist there. And this guy treated me after hours and did some dry needling um, to my pelvis actually, and got me back to running and walk, uh, sorry, walking and then running like relatively quickly. And that was such an eye-opening experience. And I felt so grateful to have um, access to that, that he really inspired me to go into PT school. And then I went to UCSF, um, got into trail running and some ultras, got injured. <laughs> and it, while I was in PT school, my body can't handle ultras, although I like to help other people do them now. Uh, I still love running, but I've also really gotten to enjoy cycling and swimming too. My body is like a little more injury prone than others. So just over the years and through physical therapy, I've learned a lot about my body. And I think that's really helped me learn how to treat other people as well. And so the foot, ankle, and pelvis are areas of the body that I'm really interested in. I have personal experience with some injuries there. And I think there's a huge connection as well. What so, was yeah. uh, PT school like? I, I loved PT school, actually. The commute was the hardest part, I say, because I was commuting from Fairfax into San Francisco. No, but PT school, I mean, I think that I have such a passion for this field that I think back to like college and obviously like a college experience is not only like the academic experience, but I remember so much more from PT school from what I learned in PT school compared to what I learned in college. Physical therapy is a really cool um, path because you can go into so many different areas. You can go work in a hospital, you could go work in a skilled nursing facility, you can work in an outpatient facility, you can do home health and neuro PT, uh, geriatric PT, pediatric PT, like so many different worlds. Um, you can be a hand therapist. And so I was actually just telling one of my patients yesterday because he was asking me about um, a hand injury. And I say like, I would say I'm not a hand therapist, but I do consider myself a foot therapist and the hand and the feet are similar, but I still feel like, oh, the hand's not something that I, uh, I know that much about, even though I know so much about the feet and you could probably correlate them similarly. So yeah, we learned a little bit of so many things in PT school that like you kind of just brushed the surface over all these areas. And then I think after you graduate, you kind of decide, okay, which path do I want to take? And then through experience and continuing education, 
you just continue to grow and you don't have to be stuck in one area. That's pretty cool. You could go do something else um, down the line or whenever you want. Yeah, I think I've learned so much since PT school in terms of the foot and the ankle and, and the pelvis too. And I have like, I think about those two areas and I still have more to learn there. And then I'm like, wow, I could learn so much more about the elbow or the shoulder or things like that, which I still treat a lot of, but my passion really right now at least is the pelvis down. Are you kind of given an area of like expertise in school or it sounds like you're you just like generalize and then you're given the freedom to kind of like narrow in on a particular area afterwards? Yeah, exactly. You could do um, like a, a residency after PT school in a certain area and you can sit for a test. Um, I have not done that, but you could get like an orthopedic specialty or neuro. Um, so you can go do more in terms of like adding initials to your name, but you can also do tons of education that is not that. So where'd you go after you graduated from PT school? So I uh, went and I worked at a clinic in Mill Valley. So just north of um, San Francisco in Marin County. Um, yeah, so I worked at Presidio Sport and Medicine in Mill Valley, and they have another location in the Presidio in San Francisco. And I actually worked there p- before PT school as well. So a great kind of like lead up into PT school is working as an aide at an outpatient clinic. And so you get paid pretty much minimum wage, but you get experience in um, like an outpatient clinic, which you need to apply to PT school. So you have to have a certain number of hours, either shadowing or working in different um, settings. So being an aide is cool because you can work one-on-one or it used to be one-on-one with patients. Now aides are kind of given multiple patients to work with at once, which I think is um, unfortunate for the patient's sake, but insurance kind of leads clinics to have to do that. So yeah, I worked as an aide at um, Presidio Sport and Medicine, and that was pretty much where I was figuring out is physical therapy the path that I want to take. I really loved working there. And so I went to PT school. And then when I was graduating, the owner um, reached out to me and asked me to come back as a physical therapist. And how long were you there for? I was there for two years. Okay. And then I know that you own your own business now. Uh, How did that kind of happen? Yeah. So I left in 2020, kind of like in the heart of COVID. And I... There were many reasons, but one glaring one was I realized, I mean, they switched us to hourly, you know, everything was kind of messed up right at the beginning of COVID. And I realized that the amount that I was making was so much lower than what I could just be making on my own hourly. And I had a good amount of people that would come to pay cash. Like that clinic did take insurance, but there were definitely people who were coming to me to pay cash um, for PT that I thought like, yeah, I think I could do this on my own. Um, It definitely was sooner than I ever thought I would leave a clinic to work on my own. But, you know, a lot of things happened in COVID and that was kind of like a silver lining for me is it kind of pushed me to do that on my own. And so I started my own clinic and I started working out of my garage Um, And then now I have a space in Fairfax, uh, which is also where I live. And um, that's also one thing, like, I I think I always knew I wanted to start my own business. Um, But like I said, COVID kind of accelerated that. 
but I also knew I wanted to live and work in the same community. So although Fairfax and Mill Valley are pretty close, I would rarely see people from Fairfax when I was in Mill Valley. And so now working in Fairfax, I am pretty much the only PT here. I mean, there are ones like in the next town over, but um, it's really fun to be able to work with my community and like neighbors and things like that. Yeah. And I think you're in a perfect location in terms of like the quantity of athletes out there. Um, yeah. Just a lot. Of, I'm sure you get a lot of business because people are always just messing themselves up, finding new ways to do it, <laughs> myself included. Yeah. Yeah. And COVID too, like everybody started running the, or like just doing things outside. They had more time and I don't know, they're bored and wanted to get fitness. Yeah. Yeah. I was working at San Francisco Running Company at the time and and we would call them COVID runners because we we experienced like a huge bump in business just because, yeah, yeah. we could go to gyms. Exactly. Um, and I'm sure that coincides with a lot of like, you know, newbie running injuries um, yeah. that we can maybe talk a little bit about. Um, exactly. So, okay, you started your own business and were you treating mainly athletes at the time? Is that kind of like the bulk of your clientele? I would say that is the bulk of my clientele. I think also just being in Marin County, like... There are, I mean, the majority of people are very active. I, I mean, I do see a very broad range. Like one guy I was working with a couple months ago was just trying to like get out of his house because he was so deconditioned. But that's, I, I, I would say that's rarer for the clientele that I see. Um, a lot of runners. One question I kind of had was like, how do you see your relationship with like doctors? Because the way I like kind of conceive of it is like you go into an orthopedist and they'll diagnose you and, you know, tell you to go to physical therapy. Is that kind of like the correct like chain or can you just go to a PT if you think something is wrong with you? Yeah, that's a great question. So you can go to a physical therapist without a doctor's referral um, and you can see them for 12 visits or 45 days, whichever comes first. And then after that, you have to get a um, physician's referral. So you do not have to go see an orthopedist. I mean, I think a barrier to a lot of care is like the chain of that. Like, okay, first I have to go see my general practitioners and then they're going to refer me to an orthopedist, but they might be booked for six weeks. So then I see the orthopedist and then I try to get into a physical therapist on all the clinics are booked for eight weeks. So there you go. That's like three or four months and you're still dealing with this injury. So you don't have to go down that route. Um, you do eventually have to get a PT referral, but your general practitioner could also write you a PT referral. So you can definitely go see a physical therapist um, and they can be the first line of treatment. And then you can kind of, okay, now I'm going to see you for a few visits and the issue might go away. I mean, if you can address things sooner rather than later, it is so much easier to treat. And like, I'm even dealing with my own shoulder injury because I have a one-year-old who's getting heavy and <laughs> I just carry him around all day. And uh, like, I just know like, okay, if I can get it, this addressed soon and just get some manual therapy to help me, like it'll just, it, it, it doesn't even have to be a big issue. But there are things like I can't stop holding him. And I also have to like treat people through work. So I have to use my arm. But if I can address this soon, it's not going to be a big issue. Yeah. And that's something that I've like been frustrated by is, you know, I'll wait several weeks to go see an orthopedist and he'll take 
a look at me for like 15 minutes and be like, just stop running. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, that's not helpful. And no. my experience with PTs on the other hand is like, all right, like this is what's going on. We need to correct it by doing these modalities and we're going to like keep on working at this. And it's like more of a relationship rather than like getting handed off to someone else, um, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the beauty of physical therapy too. Like before I thought about physical therapy school, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but I, I realized, and after talking with some friends who are physical therapists, like physical therapists get to create such more of a relationship with people that they work with um, versus seeing somebody for like 10 or 15 minutes, like once or twice. And so I think it's also important to point out like there are, I mean, there are definitely a range of physical therapists. There are a range of orthopedists. And um, I think finding the right physical therapist for you and the right sports med doc or orthopedist, they're all not the same. Um, and so if somebody doesn't feel right for you, I always, always say like, never hesitate to get a second opinion. If somebody's telling you to get surgery, you should always get another opinion. Um, yeah. So I yeah, think no, that's, that, that's a good out. point. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very wise. Um, okay. So let's get into some of the interests that you pursued after graduating PT school. You mentioned that you had experience in, I guess, dealing with some foot and ankle and pelvic issues. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So in PT school, um, I ran a 50 K and then it was after that, that I got a, um, a pubic bone stress reaction. So your pubic bone is one of the bones in your pelvis and it's, um, it's kind of in the front, in the lower um, part of your pelvis. And um, so for me, I felt like pain shooting up my adductor, which is a muscle um, on the inner side of your thigh up into your pelvis. Um, so I felt that one day going downhill, we were running in um, Colorado and so I actually, so I got diagnosed, I got an MRI, went down that route, did the rest, slowly loaded back. And then I would just have ups and downs and like, I would still have this sharp pain. And I actually had that on and off for three years, which was really, really frustrating because I mean, I was in PT school and I was asking all of my like instructors, like, Hey, what's going on here? Um, I saw a pelvic PT through UCSF. I was seeing a chiropractor and getting massage and, and, um, it was, and so I actually even considered, um, doing an adductor surgery, um, because this just would not disappear no matter how much PT I was doing, things like that. And so I actually scheduled that surgery and I was going to fly to Philly to go do it. And my boss at the time at Presidio Sport and Medicine, she was like, why don't you give this like this specific pelvic PT a try because I was like I tried pelvic PT and so I she got me in because she this woman was super booked up just like tons of PTs are and so I saw her and she treated me in a different way than anybody else had and it's not to say that the other people that I saw weren't good it was just like this is the one that that I needed at that time and so I actually still see her like years and years later and I've I've somewhat been mentored by her too. So that's where I've learned a lot of the pelvic PT that I, I now do with other people. Um, and it has a lot to do with 
um, your deep hip rotators, your pelvic floor, your obturator internus, and um, your kind of whole core canister. So I'm going to kind of go into like, what does your core mean? So your pelvis is the bottom of your core, but your core consists of your deep abdominal muscles, these deep back muscles, your respiratory diaphragm, which kind of sits on the top. So that's like kind of an umbrella underneath your ribs, um, your deep hip rotators that I just mentioned. And then your pelvic floor, which is a bowl of muscles that sits on the inside of your pelvis. And so all of those muscles work together to control pressure and just create stability in your torso. So going back to your deep hip rotators, those are like the rotator cuff of your hip. So a lot of people know what the rotator cuff of the shoulder is. Those are muscles that help suck that arm bone into the shoulder socket. The deep hip rotators help suck that thigh bone, your femur, into the hip socket. Um, they help control rotation of your leg and they help support your pelvic floor the bowl of muscles that sits on the inside of your pelvis. And they even help to control continence. So most people think of like, if you're leaking urine or feces, that's like just weakness of your pelvic floor. But there are actually supporting muscles that help along with other various factors, um, just kind of like a, a fun fact um, that help. So the deep hip rotators help um, with incontinence issues too. In terms of running, they help control the rotation of your leg as it's hitting the ground. So walking and running is all about the control of rotation as your leg hits the ground. And so that control from the hip comes from your glute max and your deep rotators. I am curious, like, why pelvic floor strength is, like, important for running. And that's kind of the what you've, you've taken us on, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. In terms of the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor strength is also very important for control in running and it, because it's part of that core canister. And a lot of people don't really understand um, what it is. So it's probably beneficial if someone's a little confused to just Google like pelvic floor muscles and see kind of how it, those muscles sit in the bowl of your pelvis. And so it's a group of muscles, just like your glutes are a group of muscles, just like your quads and your hamstrings are groups of muscles. And so if you think about like, if you were to take your quads away and just atrophy them and not use them, like how, how would it look to walk or to try to run? Like you couldn't. So your pelvic floor is a group of muscles that helps stabilize your torso and helps guide your leg as it's hitting the ground and absorb force. And so that is a huge just area that is needed with both walking and then running is even higher impact. So to a higher degree, it's important for running. What are some issues people can run into if they have like pelvic floor dysfunction um, or weaknesses in that area? I mean, there is no limit to what issues could occur. <laughs> I mean, you could have, it could go up the chain, it could go down the chain because it's such like, your torso stability can lead to dysfunction in your arms or in your legs, but I'll say some kind of obvious ones. So, I mean, I guess leaking um, urine or feces is a very um, direct one because you could see, okay, that's like in a very close proximity um, to your pelvic floor. I think in terms of running, stress fractures are um, a common one. So you could have pubic bone stress fracture, you could have 
femoral neck stress fracture, a sacral stress fracture. Those are um, all in your pelvis. But then it could go down the chain because if you don't have good stability in your torso, your legs and your arms can't move with good mechanics. So then you go to run and you're, you don't have a stable torque. You don't, it's like you're running. I think I never can get this analogy, right? It's like, you're operating a crane on sand. Like you're not able to guide your body in the right direction with good mechanics because you don't have that stability to guide it. Um, so you could have issues with your hip or with your knee or with your foot ankle. Um, so those, I mean, name any injury in your lower body and it could be connected to the pelvic floor. I'm not saying that it is, but it could be. Yeah. Well, you know, as runners, we're told, oh, you got to have a strong core, like do crunches, stuff like that. And I, I think it's like very fascinating that no one thinks about their pelvic floor when they think about their core. And from what mm-hmm. you're saying, like, it's a very, very important part of that entire kind of like column rather. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. So what yeah. are some ways that we can like work on strengthening? Um, and I've also heard like the term like relaxing your pelvis floor. Yeah. So I think that's important to talk about too, because as runners, um, okay, so running is a high impact activity. Um, so this can also apply to other high impact activities like gymnasts. Um, but your pelvic floor isn't always just weak. Um, because you're landing on one leg, you're basically doing a single leg hop for every step you take. That impact goes up through your foot, up into your knee, hip, pelvic floor, body, core, everything. Um, And so when you don't have proper control of your pelvic floor, your pelvic floor can become hypertonic. So that's where it's like in a constant state of contraction. It's trying to do the work that your body wants it to do, but it doesn't have the full strength. And so it's not only a strength issue, it's a length issue. So I like to give the analogy of um, the, a bicep. So people pretty much know what a bicep curl is. So you're straightening your arm all the way and you're bending your elbow all the way. And a lot of people do it with weight. So, okay. So that's like a normal bicep curl. You're getting the full length throughout the motion. If your elbow were stuck at 90 degrees and couldn't straighten anymore, say like, because it doesn't have the length of the bicep, you're then doing a bicep curl from like a 90 degree bend all the way in um, to the full bending. So you're stuck in this like little tiny range where you're doing a bicep curl and you're trying to strengthen your bicep, but you only have that much range. So you can see there, if you can never straighten your arm fully, you're never going to get that full strength of the bicep. And so that analogy can go into the pelvic floor. If you don't have full length of your pelvic floor muscles, then you can't get the full strength of them. So relaxing and just allowing them to lengthen is really the first part of it because you can't start strengthening if you don't have the full length. And so how you do that is through breath. And that's where it comes back to the respiratory diaphragm because your diaphragm and your pelvic floor work together. As you're inhaling, if you think about taking a breath in, your lungs are expanding, your diaphragm goes down, that intra-abdominal pressure increases as your diaphragm is descending down. And 
so what does your pelvic floor have to do? It has to also descend down um, in different ways. Like your diaphragm is actually dome shaped. Um, I, I, I guess like, like the umbrella. So it's actually contracting down in the inhale, but your pelvic floor is more of expanding down, more of relaxing and expanding, lengthening. Uh, this is all on the inhale. And then on the exhale, it's all doing the opposite. The pelvic floor is lifting up and the diaphragm is going back to its resting position. It's all about control of the intra-abdominal pressure. And so it, the pelvic floor works with your breath. On your inhale, you're relaxing, you're expanding, you're lengthening it. And on the exhale, you're lifting it up and that's where you get the contraction. So um, starting with breath, work and really focusing on the inhale and relaxing down into your pelvic floor um, is the first place to start. It's hard to exactly know if you're doing it right, but the first step is just awareness of what those muscles look like, what is my pelvic floor, and like where should I be feeling this? So as you inhale, your lungs are expanding, your ribs should expand, even the back of your ribs should expand, your belly and then into your pelvic floor. So your pelvic floor is between your sit bones side to side, your pubic bone in the front and your um, tailbone in the back. So lengthening all through that area. And um, one cue that I like to give for um, relaxing and lengthening your pelvic floor is to think about slowly passing urine, slowly passing gas, because that pelvic floor does need to relax while that's happening. And then on the, and then what does it feel like to contract your pelvic floor? That's stopping the flow of urine, stopping the passing of gas. So you can do that as you're breathing. So you inhale, you think, okay, slowly passing urine, slowly passing gas. And then you exhale, stop the flow of urine, stop the passing of gas. But one thing that's important to note is don't actually do that while you're urinating because there's a, a, a system in your body we don't want to mess with. We don't want to actually stop the flow of urine. So that's just for the exercise. And just to give like visualize what that feels like because people don't always have access to a pelvic floor PT to tell them if they're doing it right. Gotcha. Do you find that it is more prevalent in, I guess, like one sex over the other? Um, I think it's just... Um, more there's more awareness around females i i don't i couldn't say it's more common in females because i don't actually know that i just think that a lot of um males either like don't know that it can be addressed if they're having issues um probably not talked about as as much um and it's mostly known around pregnancy so I think there's a, um, a big population of runners um, specifically that don't even know like, oh, this is actually like part, it's either being caused by dis pelvic floor dysfunction or like people, I mean, with like um, femoral neck stress fractures, like that, I think stress fractures, like a lot of people just think, oh, I have to rest. And then I can just get back to what I was doing. But it's like, okay, well, there's probably a reason why that bone got so overloaded, along with the nutrition, blood work, things like that, that you should get done. But like, what sort of movement dysfunction is going on to lead to that overload of that specific part of the bone? So yeah, males, females, everybody has a pelvis. 
it's very similar anatomy, not the same anatomy, um, but everybody has a pelvic floor. You mentioned um, pregnancy, and that's something that I wanted to uh, touch on at least a little bit. What are some of the challenges faced by, I guess, like female athletes that are trying to run while pregnant and then after they give birth, uh, getting back into sport? We don't have to get like super in depth because I know it's a huge topic, but something I've noticed amongst my pregnant friends is like some can run up until literally the day they give birth, whereas others have like a harder time. Can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, why there's such like variance in that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know why there is such variance, but everybody is so, everybody's body is so different. Um, I can speak from my own personal experience. I ran probably through six months of pregnancy and I've um, only been pregnant once, but yeah, I, and I stopped because I was having, um, like pubic symphysis pain at night, like when I would roll over and I was kind of like, wait, why am I doing this? Because <laughs> it's really painful. And yeah, I could keep going, but I knew that symptoms during pregnancy can often be symptoms that you have postpartum. So I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with this, like as I'm trying to get back into running eventually, it's definitely not going to help my recovery. So it's probably not worth doing. Um, everybody is so different. Like I know women who, yeah, have ran up to the day they give birth and that's awesome that they can do that. And I don't think it's, um, most people. So I think those people are rare and lucky. And some people just push through tons of symptoms. Like if you're having heaviness in your pelvic floor while you're pregnant and because of running, that's a symptom that I, I would not recommend pushing through any sort of pain really, um, but heaviness too. And then, yeah, so symptoms that you have, some some symptoms that you have during pregnancy can just be barriers to um, recovering postpartum. And I think one disservice that kind of common, that is um, a common expectation of women is that they should be running right after they give birth. Like, especially um, most women think, oh, I'm going, I go to my six week checkup, my OB clears me to go back to exercise and I can start running right away. And that is not the case for most people. You need to build up your pelvic floor strength um, because you either had a human come out of it or on top of it. And that is a huge thing that needs to recover. That said, you, you can do other things. Like I got in the pool right away. I got on my bike just running is a lot higher impact that needs to like, if you're trying to play the long game in terms of running, like I want to be able to run long past this year. (laughs) So, so there are things that you can do to better prepare yourself to be able to run long term. And that is most likely not running at six weeks postpartum, especially not at two weeks postpartum or at four weeks postpartum. That said, people do it. Some people are, superhuman and are able to handle it. But again, that's not the majority of people. Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of like treating birth as almost like an injury, right? Like kind of ramping back up slowly. I consider it a planned injury. I like in the best way possible. (laughs) Right, totally, totally. Cool. Well, why don't we transition uh, to talking a little bit about foot and ankle issues? Because I think from what I've read, those tend to be some of the most common areas to injure um, for like new runners and and really old runners alike. How did you kind of 
get interested in that area? So I got interested in the foot and the ankle um, when I was working at um, the outpatient orthopedic clinic in Mill Valley. And I um, was just kind of stuck on um, one of my patients. Um, she was a dancer and she had a neuroma. And I just like didn't feel like I was giving her like anything that was actually helping the root of her problem. Just I was just kind of massaging her foot and doing like what I learned in PT school, which was like not anything in depth about the foot. So I, I kind of... I looked on Instagram actually for ideas and I found this company called Gate Happens and um, I just dove into that. Um, I did all their courses. I did um, a virtual consultation for my own foot and I, uh, I eventually joined their team as a virtual practitioner. So now I, I work part-time for them as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I just really got interested in the foot. And I think the foot is a unique area because people don't really think about strengthening your foot. Like, especially with podiatrists in the US, they they learn orthotics and surgery. It's like you go to a podiatrist and they're either gonna give you an orthotic or tell you to get surgery. And it's like, wait, 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 there are muscles that support the foot. There are There is control that you need in your foot. You don't have to go get your bunion removed. There are things that you can do. You don't have to get a custom orthotic. There are strengthening things and can, control exercises you can do. So yeah, I, I treat a lot of um, foot ish, foot ankle issues. There are so, so many cool things about the foot. And like, I think one like really easy fun, or I guess fact to know is that your big toe is like the stabilizer of the foot and the ankle. That if you don't have power through your big toe, you can have all sorts of issues. So that's one big thing that I teach all the time pretty much no matter what foot issue you're having. So what is gate happens kind of philosophy when it comes to um, feet and like physical therapy for like foot issues, like say plantar fasciitis um, is a really common one. So um, I think one important phrase that I use with gate happens and with my own business is we look from the top down and the bottom up. So Top down, meaning like core pelvis, um, how's, how is your stability there? Um, bottom up, foot and ankle, what is that looking like? Um, because you can't have a strong foot and ankle if it's not guided by a stable torso. So plantar fasciitis, I think um, exactly what I just said, we have to look from the top down and from the bottom up. Like how is the core and hip controlling the leg as it's hitting the ground? And then what does your foot look like? What is your mobility, stability, movement patterns? Like what are those all looking like? Plantar fasciitis has a, has a lot to do with the flexor digitorum brevis muscle, um, which you and I have talked about before. Uh, but it's a muscle that runs, it's one of um, your foot intrinsic muscles. So that means it starts and ends in your foot. So it connects your heel bone to the um, smaller toes, two through five. And it's a short toe flexor and it runs directly underneath your plantar fascia and the hypertrophy of that muscle helps offload the plantar fascia. So if you have hammer toes, that's like pretty much a weakness of that muscle. And then plantar fasciitis, yeah, same thing. And then for plantar fasciitis as well, the, the length of your um, calves is important too. And your medial gastroc, that's the inner, inner side of 
one of your calf muscles. The gastroc is the more superficial calf muscle. Kind of like um, limitations of the medial gastroc lead to limitations of um, dorsiflexion range of motion. And so um, all of that together can also lead to plantar fascia issues because it's all connected. There's one line of fascia that runs from the bottom of your foot up through your calves, up through your hamstrings, all the way to the top of your head. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's all connected. Yeah, that's that's wild. Because I think that, you know, a lot of, as you said, like a lot of the treatments for those issues are focused on like the area of your pain. Whereas from what it sounds like is you need to think more holistically and like mm-hmm. treat like further up the up the kinetic chain. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think that like orthotics, I'm sure have their place, but man, it feels like a business. It really does yeah, feel like it is. a complete business. It is. There is a time and a place for everything and not everybody needs orthotics. Yeah. And I think also too, something that just like working at a, a running store, I've kind of picked up on is people think that like supination and pronation, like the way your foot kind of goes in and out is like, they're both like bad. Yes. Yeah, supination and pronation are not bad. Supination. Okay. So pronation is kind of the lengthening of your arch. Supination is more of the um, contracting or like the shortening of your arch. Supination and pronation are both normal parts of the gait cycle. Pronation is how we absorb force and supination is how we propel ourselves forward. So the foot is a very beautiful structure in that it allows for both. It allows for pronation as we're, we have foot contact on the ground, as your leg is out in front of you and you're either like heel striking, midfoot striking, forefoot striking, then you go into stance phase. So that's where you're absorbing your force and your leg is on the ground, whether you're walking or you're running. And then we go into pronation. We want pronation there because that's helping us absorb force. Then as we're in terminal stance, so we're that's when your leg is behind you and you're hopefully pushing through your big toe. Um, that's when you're, you go into more supination. And that supination is a locking mechanism that includes the locking mechanism of our foot that allows us to propel ourselves forward. So it's really a beautiful system that we need both pronation and supination. So you can have over pronation and it could be like a structural issue where, okay, you've been dealing with it, like this is your anatomy or maybe it's it's a um, functional issue that over time became a structural issue, in which case that would be more where we want an orthotic, but it could just be a lack of control And then you could have somebody that doesn't have enough pronation, which would be more of a rigid foot type. And that would be where like, it's super easy for you to supinate. You've got really high arches, just like a rigid foot. So people deal with both um, kind of on on the whole spectrum, but I, yeah, you can do a lot to help no matter what, what your foot looks like or what it's doing. A a tool that you've turned me on to is um, the MOBO board. Uh, which I absolutely love. Uh, can you describe that for folks? Yeah, so the MOBO board is a cool tool. Um, I also want to mention the Toe Pro because that is all, that, those are my like, two favorites. Um, so um, the MOBO board helps you find like that big toe strength. So um, it works along the rockers of your foot. So um, you can stand on it and you can change the tabs. You can go 
more focusing on dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, and then you can also work on the control of inversion and eversion. And then it's pretty cool because you can flip it over and do the other foot. And then I love to work like hip control while you're doing that. So that's like directly working the hip and the hip pelvis, foot and ankle. And then the toe pro um, is created by this guy, Tom Mashad, who's a genius um, in the field. And um, his website's humanlocomotion.com, I think. We can link um, it. Okay, cool. Um, and that's a foot strengthening one. So um, you can get that flexor digitorum brevis muscle by pushing your toes. In. It's like a foam pad that's angled. Um, so you can get really good toe strength. You can also work on heel raises. Um, you can work on big toe strength. You can work on a ton of things. I'm going to ask you a uh, potentially divisive question uh, about footwear. What is your, I guess, stance on what types of footwear are best for foot health, I guess, is my question. Oh, okay. Well, I have an easy answer. Okay. I don't think it's... <laughs> um, I think it's an easy answer. Um, you need a wide toe box. Okay. Um, my favorite running shoes are Topo Athletics. I'm wearing them right now um, because they have a wide toe box. They've got trail and road shoes. They have varying degrees of heel to toe drop and varying degrees of stack height. Um, yeah. And so I think that's good for like different types of people. Not everybody should be running in zero drop shoes. Um, maybe everybody can walk in zero drop shoes. I mean, maybe not, but um, I don't think everybody needs to be running in zero drop. Um, if people can handle ultras, that's great, but not everybody can. Um, and then it's funny, I talk to my husband Levi about this. Um, we talk about how like all, you know, all the fast runners are, they're not wearing topos. Um, they're wearing, you know, Nikes and all the other like carbon, uh, plate shoes out there. Like you, you show up to any race and, you know, the top people are wearing those shoes. Those shoes aren't bad. Those obviously help you run fast. And it's just like wearing cleats or dance shoes or like, I don't know, shoes for your sport. Right. There are things that you can do for your feet before and after you put those on to help your feet. So it's not like I'm against those shoes, um, but you need to be taking care of your feet before and after you put those shoes on. Right. Yeah. Because seldom do you see runners wearing like the Nike alpha flies on all of their runs it's very right. like specific to that one event exactly. uh, it would be it would be like wearing like a football if you're a football player like wearing your football pads everywhere you go like doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense exactly uh, okay well i think that was uh yeah that was a great answer <laughs> and topo did just come out with a carbon plate um or the specter i think it's carbon plate i yeah. have it um i like it but i'm also not a top runner so Quickly before we go, um, you mentioned that not everyone should be running in a zero drop shoe. Uh, why is that? Like, what is what is like unique about a zero drop that might affect people negatively? Um, if somebody is dealing with any sort of calf issue, like Achilles calf tightness, I don't know. Um, running in a zero drop shoe is going to put more pressure on those areas. Um, so, if you're dealing with that kind of stuff, I 
would recommend going in like a little higher heel. That doesn't mean you should be wearing like a 10 millimeter heel to toe drop. A lot of people are, but that would be one indicator of I wouldn't put you in a zero drop shoe right now. I mean, if you want to eventually, like you can totally try it. But anytime you're transitioning, you should go really slow, really slow. Um, another um, really common one is lack of ankle dorsiflexion range of motion. Um, that's what I have. And so I have, I tried running in zero drops for like a year and a half. And I finally am like, all right, that doesn't work for me. And that's okay. I can still get a shoe with a wide toe box and have good foot health. Um, I have more of a rigid type, foot type. And so if you have limited ankle dorsiflexion, going into a zero drop shoe is just going to make kind of exacerbate that. Yeah. I think the takeaway is to like experiment and like find out what's right for you. Yeah. Um, awesome. Great. Well, Clara, thanks for chatting with me today. Where can people uh, find you? Um, yeah. So my website is activateptw.com. My email is claire at activateptw.com. My Instagram is activate physical therapy. And I think that's it. I have the YouTube channel, but I couldn't, <laughs> I don't really know how to access it. I think it's Claire Bernard Miller, um, but you can probably find it on my website, but I have exercises both on my, um, my Instagram and my YouTube channel. Um, I'm not super active, but uh, every like month probably I'm like, maybe I'll post something. <laughs> yeah, and then I do virtual consultations with people all over the world. So you can um, sign up for one of those. Um, if you're not in the Bay Area, you can do virtual um, consultations at www.activateptw.com. Awesome, cool. Sounds yeah. good, all right, you too. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Claire for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.